Welcome to the East Memorial Student Podcast, your source for the biblical teaching of East Memorial Student Ministries. I'm your host, Matthew Ronsky, pastor of Students and Discipleship at East Memorial Baptist Church in Prattville, Alabama. Going back to our Karate Kid illustration from a few weeks ago, if we began with the wax off and the wax on, and if last week we sanded the floor, then tonight we are going to paint the fence. So, and if uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about and you've never seen Karate Kid before, we are going to cover another and final foundational topic about God that will prepare us for our in-depth study of the doctrines of grace. So before we begin our karate study, so to speak, we need to to learn those basics. And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to have one more basic foundational topic that we're going to cover this evening. And that is the topic of God's control over the future. God's control over the future. And what I mean by that is, well, how does God relate to the future? And what is God's level of control over the outcome of all things. And to begin this study, we're gonna begin with a single term called foreknowledge, foreknowledge. And I do have a slide for this to give you a definition. So what do I mean by foreknowledge? Well, foreknowledge is knowing about something or somebody ahead of time. So you know about something or somebody ahead of time. Now in the debate, over the doctrines of grace, and you might remember there's two sides to this debate. In the debate over the doctrines of grace, both sides would agree that God has foreknowledge of the future. And what I mean by that is both sides would agree that because there's no limit to the knowledge of God, God knows everything that will occur in the future. The real question of debate, however, is this. What is the basis of God's foreknowledge of the future? What is the basis? And what I mean by that is, for example, does God know the outcome of all things in the future because he can predict everything that will happen? Therefore, he knows all things. Or does he know the future because he determines everything that will happen? Now, this is a point of debate because Prediction and determination are two technically different things. For example, if I determine something to happen, or if I determine that something will happen, that means that I have control over that something. If I predict that something is going to happen, I may have all knowledge about all things, and I can then give you a a prediction that is 100% accurate and guaranteed. But if I'm predicting it, then it implies that I do not have ultimate control over that something. So let me give you an illustration, okay? This is a relationship I'm sure you all know about that's very popular in social media right now. Yes, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift, right? The two worlds combine. Two worlds combine football, pop music, right? Almost seems like a match made in heaven. But if they get married, it is a match made in heaven, okay? But relating to that, if regarding their marriage, I can predict 
if they're going to get married. And let's say, because I have superpower knowledge, or, or even in this case, I, I know a friend of Taylor Swift that's texting me, hey, the proposal's going to be at this time. I'm helping Travis Kelsey, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Because of that inside knowledge, I may be able to give you a 100% accurate prediction that they are going to get married. Right? But I can't say, even if I were to have that knowledge, which I don't, I can't say I determine that they're going to get married because I don't have any control over what they do, right? So I can't force it to happen. So if I were to say I determine that they're gonna get married, you know that that's wrong. But if I predict it, well, that's different. I could theoretically predict whether or not they're going to get married. So turning back to God, when it comes to, to God's foreknowledge of the future, again, does God know the future because he has determined what will happen in the future because he does have full control over everything that will happen in the future? Or are there times when God is simply predicting the future because if that were the case, either he cannot control everything or he does not control everything? What is the answer? Now, some might say, well, there are times when God both determines the future and times when God predicts the future. So maybe it's a little bit of both. It can't be both at the same time, but maybe there's different times. Well, let's address this by looking at how the Bible depicts God's relationship to the future. What does, God, what does the Bible say about God's control over the future? And the first passage I wanna look at is in Acts chapter two, in the New Testament, the book of Acts chapter two, and I'm gonna read verses 22 to 23, 22 to 23. It says, now this is the apostle Peter that's preaching to the people in Jerusalem. And he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, implying God the Father, with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, because they had seen it firsthand. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now stopping here, I wanna point out something to observe in this passage, and that is that God the Father's foreknowledge of the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that foreknowledge is clearly associated with God's predetermined plan. It says it according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Therefore, in this passage, the foreknowledge of God is connected with his determination. In this case, his predetermination, what he determined would happen before it actually happened. And really, this example of the crucifixion of Jesus is a great example of God's predetermination because there was no time, according to scripture, during the arrest and crucifixion where God the Father or Jesus were not in full control of everything that happened along the way. For example, Jesus knew that Judas 
would betray him. He mentioned that multiple times months before he would actually be betrayed. And yet Jesus chose to keep Judas in the group of the 12 disciples. And if you were to go to the Last Supper, you find that Jesus even gave permission for Judas to go betray him and to do what he intended to do. So Jesus was in control of his betrayal. Also during the arrest of Jesus, there's one point when Jesus tells Peter, after Peter tries to defend him with the sword, he tells him to stop and he reminds Peter that if he wanted to, he could appeal to his father and at once have 12 legions of angels that could rescue him at his disposal. And so he's reminding Peter, hey, I'm in control here. If I wanted to get out of this situation, I can make it happen instantly. Don't try to do anything stupid. Don't try to cut anybody's ear off. So there's that, that point. Because that's what he did. That's right. That's right. That's what he did. He cut somebody's ear off. Jesus healed it though. He restored his ear. All right. Another point about Jesus' arrest and, tr- and crucifixion is there's a time when Jesus told Pilate during his trial that Pilate would have no authority over his life if it had not been granted to him from above. So another reminder that Jesus and God the Father were in full control. So in the case of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, God's foreknowledge, his knowledge of what would happen ahead of time was not a prediction, it was a determination. It was part of his plan. All right, well, let's go to other examples in scripture, other examples that might connect God's knowledge of the future with what he determines. And one example is in Psalm 139. So turning to the Old Testament now, Psalm 139, and we're gonna look at verse 16. This is a very popular Psalm that is quoted often. And maybe you might be familiar with this verse when we read it. But it says, Psalm 139, verse 16, Speaking to God, the psalmist says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. So according to this psalmist here, he is claiming that all of his days, his entire lifespan, all of it was determined by God before the psalmist was even born pretty high level of control over the future. You can think of all the decisions a person might make that might result in a shorter life. And yet here, and according to other verses in scripture, God is in control of the exact moment a person dies. Even he is in in control even of the birds when they die, according to the teaching of Jesus. Well, let's go to another passage, Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, we were in Isaiah a lot last week and the week prior. But Isaiah 46, especially last week, we talked about God's glory. Isaiah 46, we're gonna read verses nine to 11. Nine to 11, starting in verse nine, God says, remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. 
calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. All right, so here we have a situation in the book of Isaiah where he's both comparing himself to the false idols, saying that no one is like me. There is no God like me. I am the only God. And then he gives this prophecy in verse 11. But what I want you to see is in this passage, God is clearly talking about his knowledge of the future, his ability to to, to declare from beginning to end, from a time before anything ever happened. So he's clearly talking about his knowledge of the future, his foreknowledge, his ability to announce beginning to end. And it is associated with, if you were to highlight in your Bible, he, it's almost like he's emphasizing it's associated with his good pleasure. So what he feels like doing, his purpose, God's purpose, his planning, he says, I have planned it. And then his doing, I will do it. So this is another passage where God's foreknowledge of the future is based on his plans and his determinations. He is the one that determines what is going to happen. Therefore, he knows what's going to happen. Now, at this point, there is one major objection to the idea that God determines everything that will happen in the future. And that objection could be stated in this question, what about evil? What about evil? We know that evil things and disasters that cause injury and loss of life, we know that these things take place in this world every day. And so the question is, does God determine those things as well? And often people would bring this up because They understand God to be perfectly good and righteous, which we've talked about and which is true. Therefore, how can God control evil? That seems to be a contradiction. Well, let's go through scripture and look at whether God does in fact control evil. And to begin, we don't need to turn back there, but we can mention again the crucifixion of Jesus and his death and how all of that took place according to God's predetermined plan. And if we think about it, for all those things to happen according to God's predetermined plan, it involved evil actions and deeds, right? Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that was evil, yet that was according to God's plan. The trial, the unjust trial, first with the Pharisees and then with Pontius Pilate, that was unjust and evil as well. And then we could also mention the the mocking and the crucifixion itself at the hand of the Roman soldiers. That was evil as well. And so as a first example, the crucifixion seems to indicate that God's predetermined plan does include evil things to happen, which would include then his control over, which would, would lead us to the conclusion that he does have control over evil, that he even determines evil to happen. Here's another verse in the Old Testament from the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, probably a book I'm going to assume you haven't read recently. It's a small one next to Jeremiah, but it will be up on the screen. Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 37 to 38, but starting in verse 37. 
It says, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Now, my translation here, New American Standard, says ill. But that word could also be translated as disaster, and it could be translated as evil. It is the word that can be translated now. Now, I think in this context, if you were to read the, the broader chapter, disaster is probably, probably the better translation. But whether it's evil or disaster, the end is the same. People are losing their life. People are suffering. And according to this passage, it is from the mouth of God, it is from the decree of God, the pronouncement of God, that these things come forth. There's one more example, and that is from the story of Joseph. Now, we don't have time to read through the whole story of Joseph, but hopefully you're familiar with it. And if you're not, let me give you a little synopsis or a little summary of what happened to Joseph. So first thing that happens to him is he was sold into slavery. And we can clear the screen when I'm, when I'm done uh, talking about it. But uh, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Pretty evil thing. And then to make matters worse, despite being a faithful servant to the master that purchased him, he was later accused of trying to commit adultery with his master's wife. And as a result, he was thrown into prison, despite the fact that he was completely innocent and had done nothing wrong. And then due to further unfortunate circumstances, he was left in prison for several years, practically forgotten. But then finally, through all of this, he was promoted to the second most powerful position in Egypt, where he literally ruled the kingdom in the place of Pharaoh. And this eventual position, this rulership over Egypt, second in command, it resulted in Joseph being able to save both Egypt and his own family and many others from a worldwide famine or a worldwide starvation that was taking place during his time. So there's a little summary of what happened to Joseph, but where I want to turn your attention to is what Joseph eventually said to his brothers who sold him into slavery when they reunited later in, in his life. So in Genesis 50, verse 20, Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph is talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. And this is critical. So this is what Joseph says to his brothers. As for you, you meant, or this could also be understood as planned, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, what I want to highlight in this verse, if you notice, God does not say, or Joseph does not say, that God used it for good. As if all this evil was done and planned and now God is somehow responding and saying, oh, okay, well, now this evil has occurred, so I'm gonna redeem this, and I'm gonna turn it into good. No, it says that God meant it for good. Same, same word that he replied to his brothers. You meant it for evil. Well, they certainly planned it. They certainly intended to do it. Well, God meant it 
for good. And what this implies is that it was part, everything that happened to Joseph, all of the evil that happened to Joseph was part of God's plan. It was his plan and determination. And so from all of these examples, what we see is that God is fully in control of the evil that happens in this world. And it all happens according to his predetermined plan, plans and purposes. Now, with this in mind, there is one objection to God's control over evil that I do want to address, or one you could say problem that comes from, from this, this study. And that is this, and we could, we could phrase it in a question. If God is in control of evil, does that make God evil? Does that then make God evil? And, and people would say, some people might even reject what we just went through or what, we just, what I just taught you because they would say, well, if God determines evil to happen, if he's fully in control of it, well, then that would make God evil. Therefore, I can't accept that. So, and that's a fair question. If God is in control of evil, does that make God evil? Well, there's two responses to this question. Two responses. And the first is this. God's control over evil does not make him evil because, here's what to write down in your notes, because his motives are not evil. We even saw in the case of Joseph speaking to his brother. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Even in the example of the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Clearly, Judas had evil intentions. The, the Pharisees and Jewish leaders had evil intentions. Even the Roman soldiers had evil intentions when they were doing everything that they were doing. But what about God? What were his motivations? Well, we know from scripture that God's motivation, similar to the, the example of Joseph, God intended it for the salvation of many people. And that's what we learned from scripture, that through the death and crucifixion of Jesus, through that comes salvation to all who would believe in Jesus. And we know, at least in the case of Jesus, that there was no other way to bring salvation. Sin had to be paid for, the penalty of sin had to be paid for, and it had to be Jesus to pay that penalty. So there's no other way. And we see again that you can have evil motives on the part of the men, and their motives can be evil all the way through, but God's motives can be good and righteous. I'll give a personal illustration of this. Many of you know that, that have known me for a little while that before I started training for the ministry, I was in the military. I was in the Navy, and I was a corpsman, or you could think of it as a medic in the Navy. And my experience as a corpsman in the Navy or a medic is uh, primarily emergency and trauma care. So did a lot of emergency and trauma care, um, a lot of trauma when I deployed to Afghanistan. And let me assure you, when I was doing a lot of my trauma care and emergency care, I inflicted pain on people in some of the procedures that I performed. I won't get too graphic. Okay, I'll give you one thing, right? So there's, a, there's something called an IO, okay? My medical people, have you guys heard of this? IO, okay, especially Rusty over there, paramedic, okay? And uh, Parker as well, he's nodding his head. So 
if I can't get an IV in your arms, maybe because you don't have arms, because you were in an explosion or something like that, I can get fluids into you by going through your bone. So there's a little, little ridge right here in your, your shin, flat part. I take a drill, I only drill it in, then I push fluids through, we're good to go. We can get medications, we can get fluids, okay? Most of the time, it's pretty quick, not, you know, relatively not the most painful thing, but sometimes in the heat of the moment, it can be pretty painful, right? Literally drilling into, into bones. Now, am I evil for doing that? Was I? The answer should be no. Why? Because one, I was a medic, so I was theoretically trained to do that, okay? Theoretically trained to do that. And I was doing it to save their life because they were injured, they needed fluids, they needed medication. So my motives were good. The situation called for it, the circumstances called for it. Now, if I wasn't a medic, and if the person was not injured, and I'm doing it just because it, you know, I wanna make somebody feel pain and I just wanna hurt somebody, well, now I'm evil, right? Now I'm actually torturing people. So we see that's just one illustration of how the motives behind what is happening and the situation surrounding it can determine whether it's good or bad. And in the case of God, his motives are always good. They are always pure. And so that's one response to this problem. Here's the second response, and this is where we're gonna spend a lot of time tonight. The second response is this. God's control over evil doesn't make him evil because he does not force anybody to commit evil. He never forces anybody to commit evil. If you would turn in your Bibles to James chapter one, I want you to see this in your text. James chapter one, we're gonna read verses 13 to 14. Starting in verse 13, the apostle James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And lust there, we could also translate desire. Desire. Now at this point, having read this verse, it might seem like there's a contradiction here. And what I mean by that is this. How does God plan and determine evil to happen if he does not force anybody or tell anybody to commit evil? Where does evil come from? How, how, how can we explain this? And I would say this, that if we can explain this and if we can reconcile this apparent contradiction, then not only will we have a better understanding of God's control over the world, but we will also be better prepared for our study of the doctrines of grace. This will come up later in some of the topics that we, that we cover. So what I'm gonna do for the rest of this evening is I'm going to outline how God brings about and controls evil. And we'll see how we do on time, but I think this will take us to the end. And so let's turn to how does God influence evil? How does he bring it about? How does he control it? I'm gonna give you some steps. So it's like a 
How many steps do I have? I think I have at least four steps. Four step process. Step number one. Step number one, this is what God does first. God creates creatures, either humans or angels, that's what I mean by creatures, who are both self-aware and who have self-will and self-desire. So he creates beings who have a mind, who are aware of themselves, aware of others, who have desires, things that they might want, and who make decisions for themselves. This is the first thing that God does. And if you remember from our previous passage, we'll look at it one more time. Hopefully you're still there in your Bible. But James chapter 1, 13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So again, as this passage highlights, the beginning of temptation to evil is a person's own desires. That's where evil starts, in the heart, in the desires of a creature. And we could even say this, that if God creates a self-willed being, like an angel or like a human being, and if God does not forcefully subdue the will of that person or forcefully keep them away from sin, and God has the ability to keep people away from sin. There's an example in the book of Genesis, Abraham, his wife Sarah is a beautiful woman and he's going to a foreign country and he's afraid that the kings or the king of this country is going to see his wife, want his wife and then kill him so he can have the wife. So what does he do? Does he trust in God? No, he says this, I'm gonna tell them that she's my sister so that they won't kill me. So he tells him that she's his sister. And uh, so then what does the king do? He takes her to be his wife. Says, oh, okay, she's available and she's beautiful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take her into my group of wives, probably multiple wives, okay. Well, God appears to him in a vision and says, you're a dead man for taking this woman because she is the man's wife. But then he says, whoa, 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 Lord, I didn't know that she was married. He told me, that she was his sister. And so I'm not trying to do anything evil here. And, and God actually says, yeah, I know. I know that Abraham did this, which is why I kept you from touching her. And it says there that he kept him from sinning. He says, therefore, let her go, give her back or else. But it's clear in that, in that passage, I believe it's in, is it Genesis 21 maybe? Don't quote me on that. Um, if you want to read it yourself, but it's very clear that God can keep somebody from committing sin. But if God does not do that, then if he creates a self-willed creature, then the potential for sin and evil is there. The potential is there from the beginning. Well, let's move to a second step. And this is a step that actually causes desire to turn into sin. Right, so we talked a little bit about desire a few weeks ago when we finished out our series on the Ten Commandments. Not every desire is necessarily sinful, but every desire can become sinful if it goes too far. 
And so here is how a desire can become sinful. Here's, here, how, here is how they do become sinful. Step two, this might be a little bit surprising, but the next step is that God issues a command. God issues a command saying no, or I know you don't wanna do this, but you will do this. God issues a command. Now you might be thinking, wait, how does this, how does this turn desire into sin? We'll go now to James chapter four. James chapter four. James chapter four says this. We'll read verses one to two. James says in verse one, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures or your desires that wage war in your members, I in your body? Verse two, you lust, you desire, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And then we'll stop there. So what we observe in this passage, when a desire is met with a no, when it is not fulfilled, we could also think of it that way, there are two possible outcomes. One, the creature in this case, either the human or the angel, they can accept the no, they can embrace the no, and give up their desires. That's one option. That's the option away from sin. The second option or potential outcome is that the creature will become angry and lash out in sin. In other words, the creature says, I want what I want, and if anybody is gonna tell me no, they're gonna have a, we're gonna have a problem. That's the second outcome. And here's the thing, the self-willed creature will always choose option number two. They'll always choose option number two. Let me show you one more verse. Let's see. I think we can make it, maybe. Uh, let's skip it. I'll just summarize. Romans 7, if you read the first part, Romans 7, verses 4 to 13, if you're taking notes, Paul talks about this in greater detail. And he basically talks about how the commandments of God, which are good and holy, when the commandments become known to the sinner, the commandments actually have the effect of bringing out the sin. It's kind of like when you read the sign, don't touch wet paint. And now all of a sudden you just have this urge to touch the paint. Or if we were to, if Chris and I were to tell Jude, specifically Jude, more so than Levi, Jude, there's cookies on the table over there, don't eat them before dinner. Now, all of a sudden, okay, he's aware of cookies. And even if he didn't, he didn't want anything to do with cookies before, now that we've mentioned it, now he wants to have some cookies, right? So, and there's, there's others that might, might be able to relate to that, right? So this is an example. This is step number two. God gives a command. And when the command meets with the desire and, and restricts the desire, in almost all cases, when God does not overcome the will it results in sin. Well, here's step number three. Here's another way that 
God brings about more evil is this, step three is that God withholds judgment and restraint on the self-willed sinner. He withholds judgment, or in other words, he lets them have what they want to a degree. One passage, very short one, Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 11. You don't have to turn there for the sake of time, but it will be up on the screen. Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 11. It says this, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, here's what's happening. If a sinful person gets what they want and there's no consequences, there's no judgment, there's nothing that restrains them, then eventually they begin to think, oh, I can get away with this. Nothing's gonna happen to me. Well, once they start to believe that they can get away with it and once they start to experience that sin and any pleasure that might come with it, well, then they think, yeah, I want more of it. Nothing's gonna happen to me anyways, so let me have more, right? Using the cookie illustration, if you knew that, you could eat as many cookies as you wanted and you'd never get fat. It's just infinite, you would just eat them, at least me, I would eat them nonstop. I wouldn't stop, right? Because there's no consequences. Well, because I know I'd get fat, I'm not gonna do that, right? So in the same thing, if God withholds judgment, then that will result in an increase of sin and evil. It's not that God is causing them to commit more evil. It's not that he's forcing them to commit more evil, but he is removing restraint. He's withholding judgment that does not stop the evil from increasing. In fact, it encourages the evil to increase. It's like the faucet of a kitchen sink. Assuming your plumbing works in your house, the water pressure is already there. All, really what determines if the water comes out is whether you open the faucet or not. You turn the valve. Or you can close it and stop the water. And so in the same way, with self-aware and self-willed creatures, the potential for sin is already there. We've already talked about that. The desire is already there. Now it's up to God whether or not he's going to stop it or whether he's going to let it increase. And he has that control. Well, this leads us to the fourth and final step. Fourth and final step of how God can bring about evil and control evil. And that is this, step number four, Satan, the devil, can serve as an agent of evil and temptation in the plans of God. Now, we don't have time to fully explore this fourth point from the Bible, but let me make a few points, especially if you're taking notes. Here's one thing, just like with human beings, Satan, who is an angel, is a self-aware and naturally self-willed creature who has desires of his own. So Satan's sinfulness, his evil, began the same way that it does for all of us. He had desires that God said no to, that God did not fulfill. And so Satan, in response, turned to fighting and becoming an enemy of God. And so Satan, as a natural enemy and hater of God, he is happy to tempt people, to bring disaster upon people. 
And he, all, and he does this all from his own free will and free choices, if he's allowed to get his way. And that's another thing to, to, to point out that when it comes to Satan, God has full control over Satan and his activities. There's several examples of this. Satan had to ask God permission to tempt Peter, to cause Peter to deny him. Satan had to ask permission to bring destruction on the life of Job. God has full control over Satan and his activities. Therefore, with all of this together and in mind, we can just say that God has the power to manipulate Satan and to control Satan in order to fulfill God's purposes and plans. And if Satan is the one doing it of his own free desire and his own free will, well, God is not the one that's doing it. God is not telling him to do it. And if I had more time, I would, I would show you that God does not have to tell Satan to commit evil. Great example of that is in the book of Job, but again, we do not have time to explore that, do I? Mm, no, I'm gonna control myself. Okay, because we're at 29. All right, maybe another time, another place. But let's just come to our conclusion and make a few summarizing points about what we covered tonight. And really these points are the big takeaways that I want you all to remember. So if you haven't taken any notes tonight, now you should take at least just a few notes, okay? A few big points. And that is this, point number one, God knows the future because he determines the future. Hopefully we have established that truth. That's point number one. Point number two, even evil occurs according to the predetermined plans and purposes of God. That's point number two. Point number three is this, God's control of evil does not make him evil. Does not make him evil. Why? Well, for one, God, as we mentioned, God uses evil for good and righteous purposes. His motives are pure and righteous. And then second, which we just covered, God controls evil without ever forcing anybody or telling anybody to commit evil. He's not evil for creating creatures that have a will, that have desires. He's not evil for giving commands to those creatures that may result in sin. And he's not evil if he, in his patience, withholds judgment and, and, uh, and restraint. In fact, if we were to study that, that's actually a form of God's judgment when he withholds judgment and restraint. You read Romans 1. That's another verse you can read on your own. Very clear that as a form of punishment, it says that there comes a point when God gives people over to their sinful desires so that they would face the consequences of those desires. So those three points we've covered tonight, these are the big takeaways. And again, if we can understand and appreciate the truths that we've covered tonight, then I believe we are officially prepared to begin our study of the doctrines of grace next week. So don't miss next week. We're gonna dive into it and uh, start tackling this topic. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful for this evening, everybody that is here tonight. I ask for your continued blessings upon this youth group, Lord. 
um, keep everybody safe, healthy, and help them according to your purposes and wills and in your will ultimately, Lord. Um, Lord, may the rest of this week be a blessing. May we continue to honor you and grow in the knowledge of you. I pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the East Memorial Student Podcast. For more information and updates about East Memorial Student Ministries, please visit our website at eastmemorial.org. You can also follow us on our Instagram page titled EMBC Student.